starting a new series today. It is, in fact, our Christmas series. And the series is called Christmas Tree. Uh, I was reading this week, uh, for those of you who are um, uh, early decorators, uh, it's now, t- you've probably already well advanced in your Christmas decorations. Uh, for those of you who are not early decorators, that you are like, you know, you, a bit like Scrooge, you believe that decoration shouldn't happen until December or maybe the week before Christmas. I read this week that those who decorate earlier, so those who put up Christmas decorations earlier, and this was in the Journal of Environmental Psychology, <laughs> tend to be happier and friendlier. So if you're an early decorator, you are happier and friendlier. So um, I was actually thinking I should get all those people to put up their hand and I'll just spend my time talking to you today. Um, I'm not an early decorator, um, I, but my wife is. So our Christmas tree is up. Uh, that's already happened. But if you're a December, you've only got a few days. This sermon is your warning. Get the tree out, get it ready to go. We're actually not going to be spending the next uh, four Sundays leading up to Christmas talking about Christmas trees. Uh, We are going to, in fact, be talking about uh, a genealogy, and as very specifically the genealogy that's found in Matthew's Gospel. Because if you have got your Bibles with you, uh, we're going to be turning to Matthew 1 and verse 1. I don't imagine we'll read this genealogy every single week. Uh, But we are going to read it today. And the reason we're going to read it today is for a couple of reasons. Namely, that I think this is one of those parts of Scripture that's very easy to skip over. We often, when we're doing our personal devotion study, or maybe when we're preaching, it's very easy to breeze through these parts of God's Word. But we believe that all of God's Word is useful. It is all inspired by God and it is there and is useful for our teaching. And so it is important that we don't develop a pattern of just skipping over these parts, but we actually look at why they're included and what God is saying to us. The other reason I think we can sometimes skip over them is because some of the names are really hard to pronounce. All right, And the worst thing about this genealogy is it says every name twice, which means I have to get the same pronunciation twice. All right, So where I have practiced a number of times this week. You might not be able to tell, but you just have to bear with me. But the, the main reason why we're going to look at this today and why we're going to actually read it as we start this series is because if you were a Jew in the first century, this was crucial. You see, the reason why Matthew begins his gospel with this genealogy, this lineage of Jesus Christ, is because the sceptical Jew of the first century would have stopped and taken notice when they heard this. And the reason is, is because they, if, if Jesus didn't have the, the lineage, he didn't have that royal pedigree, if he didn't have this connection uh, to David and to Abraham that the, the Jews knew was prophesied, they would never have listened. And so you can almost imagine these, uh, uh, these New Testament, these early uh, Jews uh, taking notice as this letter is being read to them, as Matthew's writing is being read, you can imagine them stopping and their ears uh, pricking up and them actually listening because it is a significant thing. And so I want you to picture that as we read in Matthew uh, 1 and verse 1 to 17. 
The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam the father of Abijah. Abijah the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. And Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, and Amon the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abahud, Abahud the father of Elikim, Elikim the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Elihud. Elihud was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar was the father of Matan. Matan, the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations for Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. And so Matthew structures this genealogy into three groups. And he he tells us at the end how it's structured. And within each of these groups, he selects 14 names. And so as was the custom, um, as was the, the practice at the time, this genealogy kind of touches on, it's not ever an exhaustive list, it touches on the kind of the highlights, the main significant people, the names that would have stuck out to the listeners who were hearing this being read. It focuses on the key people. It leaves out some of the, the, the uh, least significant one. And it's probably similar to what you've read in other parts of Scripture. If you've read some of the Old Testament Scripture, you might have seen long lists of names. So-and-so was the father of so-and-so, who was the father of so-and-so. And it goes on like that. But there is something significant There is something really important about this genealogy, and I wonder if you noticed it as we read it. You see, Jewish genealogies included men. They only spoke about who was the father of who was the father of who. But this genealogy, the thing that sets Matthews apart when it comes to looking at what, what it contains is that it contains the name of five women. And this was radical at the time. You see, the Jews, it was a very patriarchal society. I mean, the the ancient world was really patriarchal. And so to include women in a genealogy that Matthew is really writing primarily for this Jewish audience is an incredible thing. The other incredible thing about this genealogy and about the women that are included within it is, as we will see over the next five weeks, there is something remarkable about each one of them. You see, the first four which are included in those first six verses are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. 
And these were not powerful Jewish women. These were not um, powerful women. They were, they were actually definitely the first three, and they think probably as well Bathsheba, are all Gentiles. So they're not even Jews. And this is significant. And we'll see as we lead into Christmas that all of these women were marginalised. All of these women had, had really difficult journeys, really difficult stories. Uh, all of them had, would, would have been seen perhaps by people of the day as being somewhat blemished or tarnished because of their background, because of who they were, because of what happened to them. These are not women of royal or noble pedigree. These are not the women that you would expect to find in the genealogy leading to Christ. But we'll see over these weeks as we explore each one of these women that we will see again and again this gospel of grace. We'll see again and again the redemptive power of Christ to to take people who are marginalised, to take people who have had horrible circumstances, who, who to take those people and to notice them and to love them and to care for them and to include them in his story. And that is what we'll see over the next couple of weeks. And so today we're going to look at the story of Tamar. And it is possible that you have not uh, spent much time looking at this story. I tell you what, when I read it a a number of months ago when we first kind of um, planned this series um, and then I discovered I was rostered on for this first week, um, uh, the series didn't seem like such a good idea anymore. Because it is, it's, it's a really difficult story. It's included in Genesis 38. So if you've got your Bibles, that's where we're going to spend some time today. We're going to read a chunk of that text. But there's two Tamars in the Old Testament. One is uh, King David's daughter, and she has her own set of pretty horrible circumstances. And then there's the Tamar of Genesis 38. And she just appears for a moment for this this moment uh, in Scripture. But what I thought I'd do to give you an idea of where it sits. Now, you have to excuse the fact that they are not horizontal at the bottom there. I couldn't fit them on the slide. Uh, so if you're a, you know, a family tree purist, you might be upset by that, but <laughs> we'll cope. I thought it might be helpful to begin here because we know the story of Abraham. You see, God made a promise to Abraham. He was old. Him, uh, Abraham and Sarah were old. They had no children. And God promised to bless him, promised to make him a great nation, that there would be many descendants that would come through him, promised to give him a land, a land as his inheritance, and promised that through his offspring, the whole world would be blessed. And so this promise, this covenant is made with Abraham. And Abraham and Sarah were old. They had uh, no children. And so Sarah takes one of her, her servants and she gives uh, this servant to Abraham. He sleeps with his servant and Ishmael is born. But God says, no, that is not my plan. That is you trying to create this plan on your own. And so instead, in their old age, they give birth to Isaac. And Isaac has two children, and these two children are Esau, the firstborn, and Jacob. And we see here that uh, you might know the story, but Jacob kind of convinces Esau to sell him his birthright, which is the, the, the privilege, the promise, the double portion inheritance that comes with being the firstborn. And so, uh, he beca- so the line then continues through him. 
So this promise that was given to Abraham flows down to Isaac and then to Jacob. And then Jacob has 12 sons. And these 12 sons, uh, the first three of them, uh, we don't have time today, but um, are not great. And so they lose their birthright. And then we see this story of Judah. And so Judah has now the birthright. He now has this promise from God that is flowing down. Uh, and we then read about this story of Judah. And you might think, well, if the first three lost their birthright, but Judah kept it, then he must have been good. But actually what we'll see in Genesis 38 was that he had his, a whole lot of his own problems as well. Now, in terms of where this fits within the biblical narrative, you'll see another name up there, which you probably uh, know, the second youngest son of Jacob is Joseph. And you might know the musical, Joseph and his Technicolor dream coat. I was going to sing to you this morning, but I thought better of it. Uh, but this story that we're going to look at in Genesis 38 just is slotted into Joseph's story. So in Genesis 37, the brothers have got together and they've decided that because Joseph is favoured by his father and he knows it and the other brothers know it, they decide to get rid of him. And they decide to kill him because he's so irritating. Seems kind of extreme if you've got multiple kids. They probably, maybe they, this has almost been your story. But uh, they, they decide not to. And it's actually Judah who decides not to. And he, it's not because he's, you know, some saintly figure. He just says, if we kill him, we get nothing. So how about instead of killing him, let's sell him. So then at least we get some money. And so Judah pitches to the rest of the brothers. They, at the end of chapter 37, Joseph is carried off into slavery. In, in chapters 39 to 50, that's where we read about Joseph's time in Egypt and the famine and all the incredible things that happened there. But in, in Genesis 38, we have this moment, this capture of Judah's life. Uh, and we read about what happens to him. So in verse 1 of chapter 38... We read that Judah leaves home, he moves to another place, he sees a Canaanite woman, he marries her, this is something he's not supposed to do, but he does it anyway, and he and this woman have three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And so we're going to pick it up in verse 6. It says this, In the course of time, Judah arranged for his firstborn son, Ur, to marry a young woman named Tamar. But Ur was a wicked man in the Lord's sight, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Ur's brother Onan, Go and marry Tamar, as our law requires of the brother of a man who has died. You must produce an heir for your brother. Now that seems weird, doesn't it? Like it kind of seems strange that uh, his brother dies and so his dad says, All right, well, you, you, you've got to marry the widow. But there was actually this practice, this um, idea called um, levirate marriage. And levirate marriage literally means husband's brother. And so the idea here was that if a, uh, a, an unmarried brother, if his uh, unmarried man, if his brother died, he was supposed to then marry the widow. And then the firstborn of that marriage would become the brother's offspring and carry the family line, carry, uh, become that, that dead brother's heir. And so what's supposed to happen uh, is that because Ur had died, and what a great name to call your child. I wonder if when they were naming it, like, what are we going to call it? Uh, um, yeah, that's great. Let's do it. 
But if anyone is having a child, uh, um, so because Ur had died, Onan was expected to marry Tamar and produce a child with her, which would become Ur's offspring, would become effectively the continuation of this family line, would become the one who would get the double portion and the blessing. But we read in verse 9 that Onan was not willing to have a child who would not be his own heir. So whenever he had intercourse with his brother's wife, he spilled the semen on the ground. This prevented her from having a child who would belong to his brother. But the Lord considered it evil for Onan to deny a child to his dead brother. So the Lord took Onan's life too. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, go back to your parents' home and remain a widow until my son Shelah is old enough to marry you. But Judah didn't really intend to do this because he was afraid Shelah would also die like his two brothers. So Tamar went back to live in her father's home. This isn't a sanitised passage this morning. You'll see in there that there is a whole lot of stuff going on. But effectively, Onan does not want to have a child with Tamar that will not be his child. Because if he does that, that child then becomes the, the continuation of the line, gets the double portion, and Onan misses out. He misses out on the extra land, the extra wealth, the extra blessing that would pass through. And so this is the important thing. This is not an argument against birth control. Okay, Some people have actually taken this passage and said it's an argument against birth control. It is not at all. What Onan is doing here is he is happy to have sex with Tamar. He's happy to take what he wants, but he is not willing to produce the child that she wants. You see, he's treating Tamar like property. He's treating her and, uh, and not not fulfilling his end, his obligation. His, he also shows no, uh, uh, no recognition, no regard for the promises and the purposes of God. You see, they would have known these promises that had been made some generations before, but he shows no regard from that. He's completely selfish. He does what he wants. And so he dies too. And then we read that Judah, maybe unsurprisingly, uh, thinks that Tamar is cursed. He thinks there is something wrong with her. It's nothing to do with his son's own poor behaviour. It is all about her and what she is obviously doing because they keep dying. And so to avoid then doing what he is obliged to do and having his third unmarried son provide an heir for Tamar, he sends Tamar home to her father's house, which is an incredibly shameful thing for her. And so he sends her back and he wants nothing more to do with her. He's kind of like got her out of the scene, got her out of the picture, and he's just going to ignore the fact that she even exists. And we read in verse 12 this. Some years later, Judah's wife died. After the time of mourning was over, Judah and his friend Hira, the Adilamite, went up to Timnah to supervise the shearing of his sheep. Someone told Tamar, look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. Tamar was aware that Shelah had grown up, but no arrangements had been made for her to come and marry him. So she changed out of her widow's clothing and covered herself with a veil to disguise herself. Then she sat by the road at the entrance to the village of a name, which is on the road to Timnah. 
Judah noticed her and thought she was a prostitute since she had covered her face. So he stopped and he propositioned her. Let me have sex with you, he said, not realizing that she was his own daughter-in-law. How much will you pay to have sex with me, Tamar asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, Judah promised. But what will you give me to guarantee that you will send the goat, she asked. What kind of guarantee do you want, he replied. She answered, leave me your identification seal and its cord and the walking stick you are carrying. So Judah gave them to her. Then he had intercourse with her and she became pregnant. Afterward, she went back home, took off her veil and put on her widow's clothing as usual. And so the story continues that Judah's wife has died and he's gone through the morning. And then it's the period to go and supervise the shearing of the sheep. Now, this was a time that was uh, known for excess and partying, effectively. The rich people went and counted all their money that was uh, uh, made in this fleece from the sheep. And so Judah goes up uh, to where Tamar is. And Tamar realises around, perhaps around the same time, that she's been swindled. She realises that Shelah is now at an age where he should be marrying her, uh, but that she discovers that Judah has no intention of that occurring. And so he doesn't plan to keep the requirements. She's twice widowed and she faces an incredibly uncertain future. In this period of time, being a widow was really a death sentence. It was an incredibly problematic and risky and lonely proposition. You had no one uh, to protect you. You had no one to earn an income. You were completely reliant on the goodness of others, which meant that as soon as times got hard, which it frequently got in that society, that you were left and you would often die a horrible death. And so Tamar, seeing that this is the future uh, ahead of her, she takes things into her own hands and perhaps knowing what kind of man that Judah is, she lies in wait and she tricks him into providing her with an heir, which is the very thing he was obliged to provide her with. And it it says here, Judah doesn't have payment. It's obviously uh, an impulsive action and he doesn't have payment with him and so he gives her his identification seal, which was like a piece of cord that they would wear around their neck with a certain stone that they would roll across when they were kind of um, making their signature. And he gives her that, which marks his name, and and he gave her his staff, which signified his strength and his power. In in modern terms, it's probably like him taking out his wallet and him handing over his license and him handing over his credit card and saying, I'm good for it, I'll be back. Um, And so he does that, and we read in verse 20 that Judah asked his friend Hira the Adullamite to take the young goat to the woman and to pick up the things, these are important things, that he had given her as his guarantee. But Hira couldn't find her. So he asked the men who lived there, where can I find the shrine prostitute who was sitting beside the road at the entrance to a name? We've never had a shrine prostitute here, they replied. So Hira returned to Judah and told him, I couldn't find her anywhere. And the men of the village claimed they've never had a shrine, a shrine prostitute there. Then let her keep the things I gave her, Judah said. I sent the young goat as we agreed, but you couldn't find her. We'd be the laughing stock of the village if we went back again to look for her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has acted like a prostitute. Now because of this, she's pregnant. Bring her out and let her be burned, Judah demanded. 
But as they were taking her out to kill her, she sent this message to her father-in-law. The man who owns these things made me pregnant. Look closely. Whose seal and cord and walking stick are these? Judah recognized them and immediately said, She is more righteous than I am, because I didn't arrange for her to marry my son, Shalah. And Judah never slept with Tamar again. And so here we read that Judah has this sudden realisation. He has this fit of self-righteous anger when he discovers that this daughter-in-law that he has abandoned, that he has disrespected, that he has wanted nothing to do with, has, in his words, acted like a prostitute. But suddenly it's replaced with humility when he realises that Tamar is the one who's been wronged. That he, it's not his reputation that has been wronged, which is a funny way of thinking of it anyway, but it's actually Tamar who has been wronged. And we read in the final verses of that passage that uh, we read of the birth of Tamar's twins and the continuation of that family line. Now, you can see why apparently this is one of the least preached on passages in Scripture. Um, because it is one of those really awkward kind of stories, isn't it? There's a whole lot of death. There's a whole lot of sex. There's a whole lot of weird family things going on. There's um, prostitution. There's, it's like when you sit down to watch a movie with your parents as a teenager. And all of a sudden it gets very uncomfortable. <laughs> But I think we've got to be careful not to skip over these parts of Scripture. I think we've got to be careful not to think that's hard. Let's just do the easy bits. Let's just go somewhere where it's, it's nicer and it's clearer and, and makes sense to us and, and there's really clear application from it. Because you see, all of God's Word, even these parts, have things in them that God wants to reveal to us that helps us to understand ourselves, helps us to understand God that reveals more and more of who he is. And so if you are taking notes today, I'd encourage you that there's a couple of thoughts that I had as I was looking at this passage um, about why is it even in God's word? Why, why do we have this momentary interlude in Judah's story? And there's no seeming really redeemable things in it. There's no amazing moment where you're reading, you think this is terrible and in the end everyone's happy and it all comes good. But there's a reason it's there. There's a reason that Tamar is included in this genealogy in Matthew. There's a reason that Matthew didn't just leave her out. I mean, if I was writing it and I wanted to present this compelling case that Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah, he was the one who had come through the line of Abraham, if I wanted to try and convince people of that, I probably wouldn't include Tamar. I probably wouldn't put her in. But yet she's there. And I'd suggest to you this morning, the first kind of takeaway for us is that the Bible is full of these kinds of stories. The Bible is full of stories that aren't sanitized, that aren't censored, that aren't washed clean of the mess and the awkward, not so nice parts. We see stories of messy individuals. We see stories of really messy families. And yet, even though there are these messy individuals and messy families, it doesn't preclude God from using them in what he is doing. It doesn't preclude God from using them. And I'd say the same to you this morning, that just because maybe your story has been messy, 
just because it hasn't panned out the way you thought. Maybe your family life at the moment is messy. God can still use you and God can still use your story. We see stories of people in some ways, unfortunately, who are just like you and me. We see stories of real people, real sinful people, and we see this story again and again of a gracious and loving God. Over and over and over again, throughout God's Word, we see God transforming and changing people. There's this moment over in Genesis 44 where Judah, this pretty awful figure, the one who sold his brother into slavery, the one who, who has, has done the wrong thing by Tamar and then wanted her to be burned. We see this moment over in Genesis 44 when the brothers are now in Egypt and they're at the mercy of Joseph who they'd sold into slavery. There's a great famine in the land and Joseph is in great power. And he does this thing where he tricks them and the youngest brother, Benjamin, is, is being kind of told he has to stay. And it's Judah who says, don't take him, take me. This, this brother who all the way through only had care for himself. God has worked in his story as well. And we see this moment of grace that he has. And so God would say to you this morning, even in spite of the messiness, and perhaps because of the messiness, that God can use you. The second takeaway that I think we'll see carry out throughout this series is that God has always raised up the marginalised. God has always raised up the marginalised. We see it through the life of Christ. Who did Christ spend his time with? He spent his time with the leper and the lame. He spent his time with the tax collector. He, he spent his time with the women that nobody else wanted to spend time with. We see it over and over again that he doesn't just meet them, but he raises them up. He raises them up. He includes them. And here in this story, we see that God raises up this Canaanite woman, not even a Jew, but this Canaanite woman, Tamar, this widow who was abandoned and dejected. She'd experienced far more than her share of grief, of devastation, of human suffering. And not only does God raise her up, she's included in the lineage of Christ. God includes her as part of his promise to all people. What an incredible transformation that is, that not only is God not ashamed of her, he's not ashamed of her involvement in her inclusion in the lineage of Christ, and so not ashamed that she is captured here in Matthew for us. And so God has always been a God of the marginalised. And so we should too be a people of the marginalised. And lastly, I'd say to you, no matter where we look in Scripture, no matter where we look, even into the, the deep recesses of the Old Testament, like we've gone this morning, I'd say to you that there is every single point which points over and over and over again to Christ. It points over and over again to the redemptive promise of God, that God has this amazing plan that He promises as soon as this fall happens and, and Adam and Eve sin, that God had a plan and a promise to restore and to redeem. And we see this redemptive narrative of grace over and over and over again. When we read the Old Testament, when we look at these stories, we see the same God 
who isn't thwarted by our sinful nature. He isn't thwarted by our mess. He isn't thwarted by our mistakes. But what He declares He's going to do, He will do. Even when we see people like Judah try and get in the way, like his sons try and get in the way, try and halt or stop God's promise. God's promise still came to pass. And what an incredible promise that is for us. And so this series, I would encourage you to make sure you come along because we're going to look at the stories that, that continue. We have Pastor Margot sharing on Rahab next week. The, the young adults and youth are going to look at Ruth. We have Pastor Catherine Fletcher coming all the way from um, Sydney to preach on Bathsheba. And then on, on Christmas Eve, we're going to look at Mary's story. And we're going to see over and over and over again God's goodness and the way that He works through the lives of these incredible women. Would you pray? God, we thank You for Your goodness. Lord, we thank You for Your Word, even the bits that are a bit uh, awkward to read. Lord God, even the bits where it's hard, like genealogies, to, to think about what their purpose might be. But God, we thank You that every single word in the Bible is from You. It is Your gift to us. It is the bread of life that, that is God's truth. It is useful and helpful and purposeful in our lives. And so, Father, we pray that we wouldn't take it for granted. We pray, God, that You would continue as we look at these stories to reveal more and more of Your character, reveal more and more of Your goodness, reveal more and more of who You are so that we would understand You better as we approach this Christmas time. God, that You would be doing a work in our lives, that just like the story of these women, Father, You would be consistently transforming us into Your likeness, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.